Hey, thanks for tuning in to the Fountain Church Podcast. Our prayer is that God speaks to you in a real and powerful way. So go ahead, grab your Bible, grab a notepad and your coffee, and let's dive in. Somebody say open up. Now, now the whole idea is that when everything is closed down, you and I can still open up our hearts to the Lord and say, God, you still have purpose in this season. And so I, I want to speak to you today uh, around this idea of it's time to dig. It's time to dig. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you so much. God, what an opportunity it is to gather, Lord, both in person and online today. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would meet us in this space. Lord, we need you. We need to hear from heaven today. So Lord, I just ask that you would open up our hearts and our minds to hear you clearly. And Lord, I pray that you would illuminate the scriptures to us as we open up your word. And Lord, we thank you for this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen, amen, and amen. Well, I, I want to I talk to you a little bit about digging today. And uh, one, of the, one of the important things about digging is sometimes before you start, you have to make sure that you have the right tools. And, uh, and, and in order to understand where we're, going for, uh, where, where we're going in the future, I think we have to look behind us once in a while to, to really get a fullness of meaning. So I want to take you back, um, all the way back, to some of the revivals throughout history. Charles Finney, he was born in 1792, died 1875, uh, just led an incredible revival, um, or was part of a time and a season where... He just refused to settle for average when God had amazing available. He was a man of prayer. He was a man that sought the Lord, believed that God wanted to do more in his day. And there, there was one story of Charles Finney. He entered a, a manufacturing plant in New York where his brother-in-law was a superintendent. And as he stepped onto the campus, the, some of the ladies working, you could see there was some scuffle and they started to talk. And as he got closer to them, they started to get agitated and a little bit uncomfortable. And as he was about 10 feet away, they finally fell to their knees in conviction and began to repent and cry out to God because the presence of God and the anointing on this man was so strong. He must have just got out of a time of prayer, um, but, but he just walked with God in a way where, where he went, so did God. And God's presence was so rich that day that the factory owner wasn't a believer and was trying to figure out, man, what in the world is going on here? And so we said, Charles, would you preach to our entire plant? And so he preached and people got saved and there was a deep sense of God's presence throughout the entire factory. Could you imagine walking with God like that? Like, like as you step on to your school campus, as you step into your place of work or influence, I mean, imagine if you worked for Google, you stepped into that place and the spirit of God was so rich that people just started falling on their knees crying out to God. Like, I want to walk with God like that. And then I think about 1906 on Azusa Street in, Saffron, uh, in uh, Los Angeles, a, a man by the name of William J. Seymour just had a hunger for God. He came from the Midwest, came out, he felt like God was calling him to, to Los Angeles of all places, and he just really believed that God wanted to do something there. And there was this contending for an outpouring of God's spirit. Like, Lord, would you do something in this land? Would you do something in this city? And so they just began to seek God in prayer. In fact, when he first got there, it didn't look like things were 
turning out the way that he anticipated and things started to go wrong and certain uh, meeting places that he was excited about all of a sudden started to fall through. So he just devoted the rest of his days in Los Angeles to a time of prayer. So he just said, I'm just going to pray. Lord, I don't know what you want me to do. You brought me out here for a reason, so I'm just going to pray. And so we started to pray and God started to move. Next thing you know, this little prayer meeting in a house started to overflow where people were just started to come. There wasn't even any invites. People just started to come from around the city and gather outside around this house in the porch. It made for a great pulpit and the spirit of God just began to move. So many people started coming. They had to move their meetings and their time of prayer to this, this little old mission. And it was crazy because inside of it, they said there were so many flies. There were dirt floors, broken, beat up wooden altars. But man, the presence of God was there. And they just began to seek God in prayer. They began to cry out to God. And next thing you know, I mean, people, I mean, by the thousands are just coming from all over. This had such an impact on the world that there is about 600 million believers, followers of Jesus as a result, tracing back to this one revival on Azusa Street. I mean, it just, it went, it went global. And the cool thing was, is that it, it was, during, it was during a time where there was a lot of racial tension, but you can see the gospel just breaks through all of that. It was a time where it didn't matter. Like God was moving everybody from all walks of life was just coming to seek God. Such a powerful time. There was, there was a Jewish man. His name is John S. Because I, I always get his last name wrong, so I'm just going to call him John S. And he was actually coming to critique the revival. He was trying to gather some information because there was an outbreak of people speaking in tongues. And this was a little bit foreign back then, like, like Pentecostal, uh, the Pentecostal movement today, speaking in other tongues, it's, it's a lot more prevalent, but back then it, it really wasn't. And all of a sudden people were speaking in, in tongues, and so it drew uh, both people that were seeking God, but it also drew skeptics. It also drew critics. And so this one Jewish man, he came to gather some info so he could come back and kind of debunk this movement. And so they were getting ready to come back down for a time of service. They were in the upper room praying. That's what they would do. They would pray, and they would have church. They would pray, and they would have church. And this, this would happen all day, every day, from, from 1906 to, to 09. I mean, just, just incredible. And so this guy comes in, and one of the girls, rather than coming down, she stops on the stairway. She was a teenage girl. And she points out this Jewish man, and she just begins to pray in the spirit. She just begins to pray in another tongue, and he starts to weep. And in his own words, in his testimony, he said, man, I came to critique, but she began to declare my name, speaking in my native tongue. She told me what, you know, what I was doing, my occupation, and that God was calling me to repentance. And he fell to his knees, and he gave his life to Jesus. Could you imagine a move of God in our time? like that. And then you go on to the Welsh revival. Started with another young man in his 20s that started to pray for revival. When I say revival, I'm just talking about a time where God revives dead things or things that have been dry for a while. God begins to open up new wells of life, of his, of, of his presence, of his power. And um, oh, let, me, let, me, let me trace back. So out of Azusa Street, out of William J. Seymour, our church was actually, uh, our, the de denomination that our church is birthed out of uh, was founded by a woman by the name of Amy Simple McPherson. And this, this right here was called Stretcher Day. It was on a Thursday where ambulance and doctors would bring their patients on stretchers to be healed. 
And a lot of the healings that were recorded during her time were not recorded by like a Christian group or no, it was actually recorded by the state and goes down in, in history. So now let me, let me transition to uh, the, the, Hebrew, the Hebrides revival. This is on a little, little islands outside of Scotland. And there were two older women that just had a, had a deep pain in their heart. They were in their 80s. One of them was blind. One of them was crippled with like an arthritis. But they were, they were, they were plagued with this idea that there was no young people in the church. And so, so they just began to contend. They just began to pray. They couldn't even make it to church because they, you know, they, they were a lot older and a little bit more fragile. But they committed to praying from 10 a.m. to 3 p.m. every single day. And in one of those times of prayer, one of the ladies had a vision. And so she just started to invite people uh, to pray. She just started to say, hey, we, we really believe that God wants to do something amongst this next generation. And, and that's what we were praying for today. It was, today is our seventh day of fasting and prayer. And, and the, the prayer target today was our next generation. And so, so they, people began to, to gather around and pray. And next thing you know, the same thing, just revival breaks out. People are walking down the street of the city fall to their knees, cry out to God in repentance. God, forgive me. God, I need you. Nobody was preaching. In fact, the evangelist that kind of led this, this whole revival, this guy right here, he said, I can't even take credit for any of this. He says 75% of the people got saved before I even got there. They just started to fall on their face in the middle of the street and surrender their life to the Lord. I mean, you just, you, you look back and you're like, what in the world? It was so cool because there was, there was this dance happening. Back in the day, dances were a little bit risque, right? And, and there was a dance happening. And during one of their prayer times, all of a sudden, all these kids just stormed out of the dance and stormed to the church, began to fall on their face and cry out to God. And this started to kind of a ripple effect all throughout the region. And so can you just imagine that happening in our day, in our time. Now let me get to the Welsh Revival. Welsh Revival, you can see all this. It's a very old picture and hands are just, big crowd of people, hands are stretched out towards heaven. Started by a young man in, in his 20s that just started praying for revival since he was 13 years old. And he, his prayer was, Lord, would you bend me? And, and he got up to speak one day at, at a prayer meeting. And he says, I just feel like the Lord has given me a message for you. And he said, he said, Lord, he said, if, if there's any doubtful thing in your heart, like any sinful thing, get rid of it. He said, if, if there is any, you know, wayward way on the inside of you, get rid of it. If you need to make some things right, make some things right. And I'm kind of paraphrasing his, his message. And, and, he, and he just kind of leads people through just, just a few points. And, and his cry was, Lord, would you, would you bend us? He says, be quick to listen to the Holy Spirit's prompting. And he said, don't fail to be a witness and pro profess Christ in public. And he, they wrap up this time of prayer. And the next thing you know, the street, I mean, people just start the same thing. People just start to cry out to God. The churches were just getting flooded. Nobody was even inviting people. It was just this sense in the city and in the region. Grocery stores closed down. The revival, it was so amazing at this revival that they had to retrain the donkeys because they would train them with cuss words. And, and, and all of a sudden, people's lives were so dramatically changed. There wasn't any foul mouths. There wasn't any. I, I mean, when you look back at their soccer event during this time, it just says revival. They didn't even have their Super Bowl. 
because nobody wanted to be there. Everybody was flooded to the church. The bars were closing. The, 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 the jet, I mean, even the officers, they, they weren't there to, to do anything except to seek God. I mean, it was just this incredible move of God. And, and Evan Roberts was the 20-year-old, and he, he asked one of his classmates, he said, do you believe that God could give us 100,000 souls? And that's how he was daring to believe God. And over 100,000 people gave their life to Jesus during this revival. It was amazing. And then what kind of transpired after this, it really influenced a man by the name of Reese Howes. And he became just uh, an intercessor. He, just, he started uh, houses of prayer and worship. And this is where a lot of you see houses of prayer and, and you see uh, some of that those titles thrown around today. Well, this guy was kind, kind of the pioneering of having people pray 24-7. It was during World War II, and so they would pray during the wartime. They would pray uh, over the world and over the nations, and, and God just began to birth something in this man. He, he birthed the Bible college, and so you just see this fruit coming out of this time of revival. And then let me just give you one more. In 1857 in New York City, probably one of the greatest revivals to ever hit the face of the planet. The nation was totally divided because of slavery. The economy was horrible. You had about 30,000 men in the streets begging for bread. The stock market plummeted. And the church that was in the city decided to go out to the suburbs, but they left one business guy in the city. One businessman, he wasn't a pastor, he wasn't an official leader, he was a business guy, successful in business before everything started to tank. And he just decided, like, man, this, the need is so great, I'm just going to start to pray. Because he'd pass out a ton of tracts and he was trying to gather people, he was passing out information and nobody would show up to any of these things. So finally, he's just like, well, why don't I just try to seek God? I'm trying all these other things, why don't I just pray? And so he invited all these people to come and pray and he shows up to the place of prayer and he is there by himself. Nobody shows up. And then a little while later, about five guys show up and they just start to pray. And God begins to move. Next thing you know, 10,000 people show up. Next thing you know, New York City shuts down at lunchtime for prayer. And revival starts to sweep through, not just New York City, but sweep through our entire nation. And then they begin to send missionaries to China and India. They begin to send missionaries out to Korea. Now, as a result of that, 50,000 churches have been birthed in Korea with over 13 million Christians. And Korea has now been the place that has sent the most missionaries out into the world. It was said that of this revival, a million people came to Christ as a result of one man starting to pray. And I think that's, that's so incredible. We look at these massive moves of God, but the question is, is do you believe that God could do that today? I do believe this could happen today. You see, revival starts off with salvation. It starts off with a personal encounter with you and Jesus. Like all of a sudden, it's, it, it, you confess Jesus as the Lord of your life. You're not playing church. It's not about religion. It's not about, you know, checking a few boxes. No, it's like, Lord, you are the king of my heart. You are the Lord of my life. I surrender my life to you. And God at that moment places his spirit on the inside of you, and you're never the same. And then it kind of goes from salvation to restoration. God begins to restore things. He begins to restore relationships. He begins to move on your heart to, to forgive others. And, and you just start to see this restoration and healing start to happen. God begins to heal up some of the areas and, wanted, and deals with some of the areas of hurt and wounding that you've experienced over the years. 
And so God, we, we move from salvation to this place of restoration, and then we move into this, this space of transformation. This is where we're really aware of God. All of a sudden, we're really aware of his word. We're aware of his presence. There, there's a, a deep sense and longing for God and, and a sense that our old ways and habits, we start to detest them, but yet we're still fighting with them a little bit. And God is uprooting, you know, old habits and, and old ways. And, and it's kind of like Paul in, in Romans chapter 7, the things that I want to do, I don't do. The, the things that I, I, I want to do, I don't do. And the things that I don't want to do, I do. And Paul's just kind of in this fight. And, and it's this process of transformation. And then we move from transformation to renewal. And this is where there starts to, so some movement starts to happen in the church. Like people are getting saved quite a bit. There's, there's a sense of growth. Things are happening. And a lot of times we, we misunderstand revival for renewal in our day. Because when revival hits, everything accelerates. Like the amount of people that got saved over the last 20 years get saved in two weeks. And all of a sudden it's just it's like this explosive move of God that no man can take any credit for. That no strategy or or. or, or or any type of programming can take credit for. It's just this massive move of God. And then from revival, that leads to awakening. Awakening is where it begins to pour out into the city, pour out into the region, pour out into the nation, pour out into the world. And that's what we're contending for in this hour. We're, we're, we want revival, but we're contending for awakening. And the cool thing is awakening and revival are not needed where things are alive. They're needed in, in moments where things are dead, where things have dried up. And so wherever you see death, there's an opportunity for revival. Wherever you see dry bones, there's an opportunity to prophesy life into those things that they may live. But here's the deal. All these revivals that we just talked about, it wasn't because they did something new. In fact, I would propose that they just dug up some of the things of old. Right, let me go back to, to Genesis. I love this passage, Genesis 26, 18. It says, and Isaac dug again. Somebody say, dug again. It says that he dug again the wells of water, which they had dug in the days of Abraham, his father. For the Philistines had stopped them up after the death of Abraham. They stopped them up after the death of Abraham. He called them by the names which his father had called them. So Isaac is in a season where there's a famine in the land. He's doing his best to walk with God, and he recognizes his hereditary right and responsibility to dig up the wells and to restore the wells of his father Abraham. Now, later the Lord would say, you will dig up your own wells, but, but first dig up your father's wells. Like, I'm going to do something new I'm going to do something new in the land, but I first need you to dig up some of the things of old. I need you to, to dig up the wells of your father before I'm going to do something new and you're going to dig up your own wells. You see, the, the Philistines, they stopped them up because the water was really, water is really precious. I know in the, in the States, we take this for granted quite a bit. There are some places in the world that don't have running water. And you see really quickly that water has the sense of life to it. As we look in scriptures, Jesus talks about or refers to water quite a bit. He who believes in me, um, it'll be like a spring of living water welling up on the inside of him. 
He told the woman at the well, man, if you drink the water that I have, you'll never thirst again. This, this, this sense of water and life, water brings life. And without it, man, you're in some serious trouble. And especially in this ancient world, there was always a fight for the water. Because he who fought for the water controls things. He who has the, the water rights, as one of my pastors, Dave Patterson, would say, he who has the water rights has the authority. Because they have the ability to raise crops and herds. They, they're the ones that have the influence. In fact, Peter talks about the godless in the New Testament, and he said they're like wells with no water. And so there was this sense of, 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 of water. It's really important because it brings life. And, and there's a lot of things that you can do with water. He who has the water rights has the authority. Yeah. And so the enemy is work, working really, really hard to always keep the wells of prayer and holiness and devotion works really hard to keep those wells stopped up. Because if he can stop up those wells, all of a sudden it gives him the upper hand. See, I believe, if you're taking notes, you can jot this down, that God wants to do a new thing in an old way in our day. Like I said, these past revivals, they just dug up some old wells. They dug up some wells of waiting and tearing with God. Like, like their prayer time was not like maybe a prayer time you know it today. We're talking hours. We're talking nights. We're talking they would pray all night, get up and go to work in the morning. I mean, there was just this, this hunger for God. There was this, this purity of devotion. Just saying, man, God, I, I want to I see a move of you in my life. I want to see a move of your spirit. There was, there was this deep sense of devotion to God. But, but as you look throughout all of these past revivals, and there's a lot more that I can't even talk about today, but you see this one common thing that prayer and intercession are the primary tool that dig up the wells to release the water. Let me say that again. That prayer and intercession is the primary tool that digs up these wells so that the water can be released. You know, Paul tells us that we are not fighting against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against wickedness and heavenly places, meaning that the, the battle that we're facing even today in, in our life, in our homes, in our world, it's, it's not a battle of flesh and blood. It's a spiritual battle. And here's the deal. Uh, once again, uh, one of my pastors, Dave Patterson, I, I love how he says it. He says, I think today we could sum up things in the first phrase of what Paul is saying is we are not fighting. We're just not fighting. We're programming we're Instagramming. We're doing every, you know, we're doing all these things, but we're really not fighting. And, and I, it reminds me of Gideon in the time of Judges. Let me give you a context. In the time of Judges, there was a generation that got away from God. They forgot about who he was. They forgot about what God had done, and they lost all sight of what God could do. And it says in Judges chapter 2, verse 10 and 11, it says, After that, a whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors. Another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals, which is uh, the, the God of fertility, the, the, the God that promises fruitfulness but never delivers. Judges chapter 21, verse 25, it says, In those days there was no king in Israel, and everybody did 
what was right in his own eyes. And this is, this is what was happening. The people of God, after Joshua, there was a whole generation after Joshua. God used Joshua and that generation to do some incredible things. Right? Got the people into the promised land. But after Joshua, there was a generation that neither knew the Lord nor, nor what he had done in the past. Like they had just totally forgot, which really enabled them and paralyzed them to believe for what God could do in the present. And so sometimes we have to go back and redig so we can remember all that God can do. Are you tracking with me? And so, so as a result of that, they worshiped false gods. And the Midianites now were, were overpowering them and oppressing them to such a degree that these guys just had no more fight. This is going to sound super corny and cheesy, but they lost sight. And as a result, they had no fight. There was no fight left in them. They stopped digging, and they were just surviving. They were just surviving. Like, they, they have lost sight of who God was, and the enemy had filled the wells of their faith. And there was no more, there was no more contending. There was no more believing. And so, so you get this picture in your mind, and then God shows up in light of all of this to a man by the name of Gideon. It says, the angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak and orpher that belonged to Joash the Abrazite when his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press. So he's threshing wheat in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. He's, he's hiding. He's trying to preserve. Because any time that they would prosper, the Midianites would come in and ravage them. They would rob them. If there were good crops, they would come through and take them. And so... Gideon is hiding, and it says, when the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Now, I want you to get this picture. Gideon is threshing wheat, which normally happens outside. Like, better, better place for, for threshing wheat would be on a hillside. Because you need wind. Because what happens is you throw up the wheat, and the shaft gets blown away, and the grain falls to the ground. So you need an open place with some wind. And a wine press in Gideon's day was like a hole in the ground. So here Gideon is in an empty wine press. There's no wind. He's trying to thresh wheat in a wine press. There's no wind. And there's also no wine. Like you're in a wine press, bro, and you're trying to thresh wheat. Very confusing picture. And I think it's, it's such a great image for us. That when we get away from the things of God, we begin to live in a way that God looks and it's just so confusing. Like, what are you doing? Like, you're trying to get wheat results in a wine press. And so I felt like as I was preparing for this message this week, I felt like the Lord say very, very clearly, why are you living in empty wells when I've called you to dig up full ones? I felt, I felt like the Lord say this. I felt like the Lord say, why are you settling? For no wind and no wine. See, see, in, in, the, in the scriptures, we look at wind. There was, wind was always symbolic of this move of the Spirit of God. And the Spirit of God would come through like a mighty rushing wind. And wine was always a symbol of joy. Unless you drink too much. Then that's debauchery and drunkenness and that's sin, right? And so it was almost like the Lord saying, listen, why are you trying to live where there's no power and there's no joy? You're trying to thresh wheat in a wine press. When God says, I have so much more. So Gideon, he rebuttals. He said, pardon me, Lord. 
He said, if the Lord is with us, why? Ooh, this is the question of the day. Why has all this happened to us? Where are all his wonders that our ancestors told us about when they said, did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? I think so many times, even today, we can get so stuck on why is this happening rather than God, what do you want to do? Like, how do you want to use me in the midst of all of this? But you can hear it in Gideon. There's no more belief. There's no faith. He's paralyzed. There's there's no movement. And I love what the Lord said. The Lord doesn't even respond to him. He just says, the Lord turned to him and said, go in the strength that you have. Just go. Go in the strength that you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Which for Gideon, this, this, this is so hilarious to Gideon because he is like from the smallest tribe, the weakest tribe. And it's almost like, go with what I have to save the world. And God's like, yeah, because am I not sending you? Almost like he's saying, listen, what you have is perfect with all that I have. And if I'm going with you, if I'm sending you, follow me. And you're going to have everything you need to do what I've called you to do. Now, this is what's so interesting, is that the first thing that Gideon does, or that the Lord has him do, is to tear down the altars and the idols of Baal and Asherah, the Asherah poles, which was kind of like Asherah was also kind of a fertility god, but she was like the god of religions. Like she represented like 70 gods. So it's kind of like we want Baal fertility, we want fruitfulness, and we want Asherah because we just want to make sure we're covering all of our bases. But their devotion and, and, and their, their hearts were, their, their time was consumed with idols that had no power, no life, no hope, no wind, no wine. So God said, listen, I want you to tear them all down, and I want you to build a proper altar. And I want you to use those things to build a proper altar. And so, so I, I want you to get this picture. God is saying, I need you to leave the former focus. I need you to leave the former things that you've been devoted to that have been sucking up your time and your life. And I believe that God is calling us to the, to the same thing. That God is saying, don't settle for no wind and no wine. Like, like don't, don't live in empty wells when I've called you, called you to dig up full ones. But you're going to have to burn some things up so that you can build an altar of prayer again and begin to do all that I've called you to do in a very difficult time. Now, now everything, everybody when we hear this, we're like, amen, let's go. But it's got to get beyond that spot. See, I, I think there, there's something called Bloom's process of change. And Bloom's process of change says we become aware. Like right now, I'm helping you to become aware again of revival, of what God can do through men and women that pray. We're talking about digging up some old wells, so you're, you're starting to get aware like, oh, man, could it? Like, could God really do this in our time? And then we, we start to ponder, right? Could it really happen? Wouldn't that be amazing? If an outpouring of God's spirit just began to rush through the streets of our city and all the stuff that we're trying to put together in peace and God just begins to heal it with an overflow of his presence. Like, like what in the world? And, and so we start to ponder and then we start to value it. We start to say things like, amen, that's it. Yes, we need to do that. 
and then there's a gap. And I used to think that because we don't do something must mean we, not, we don't value it. But then I don't think I believe that anymore. I think, I think that we do value certain things because when they don't happen, we're extremely disappointed. And when we're not devoted to certain things that we really value, there is a place of heartbreak. There is a place of lament. There is a place of like, oh, what am I doing with my life? Why, why did I do this? I, like I lost sight. What is happening? Because this gap then keeps us from prioritizing what we say we value. Like if, if we really say that we value prayer, then you got to prioritize it. It's got to be, become a part of the rhythm of your life. Like, like it, it takes precedence, and then we start to own it where it just is our life. Like this is the way that I live. I seek God prayer. I'm digging wells every single day because I just know and believe that God is still able. And so, so what, what ends up happening is I think as we leave times and moments like this, and we're like, yes. But then in this gap, we're battling this idol of distraction. And distraction is so big in our day. So big. Like some of you guys are distracted right now. It, it's an idol of distraction. We are so connected more than we ever had been, have ever been on the face of the planet with this digital revolution that we have embarked on. Like before the digital revolution, our attention span was about 12 seconds. Now, since the digital revolution, it is now, how many seconds do we have? Uh, it was 12, and now, now it's eight seconds. Eight seconds. You know how many seconds a goldfish attention span is? Nine. Like, we are losing to goldfish, people. And, and it, gets even, it gets even worse. Like, like, there are thousands of apps that are designed to distract you. It's a battle for attention. Right? A lot of times we think that, um, that, that we're using products, but really we are the product that they're studying, that they're keeping us addicted to, right? Social media, there's no end. And Netflix, at 30 seconds, we're going to the next movie. It's just, I mean, listen to this. Silicon Valley techs, high-level people are paying an uber amount of money to keep their kids in device-free schools. Why? Why, why is that? And then, and then you add in the, the phones. Woo! The average user, are you ready, touches their phone 2,617 times a day. That's the average user that spends about two and a half hours on your phone, except it's broken down into about 26 sessions. So it doesn't feel that bad because it's over a period of time. And so, so get, get this picture in your head. You have... You have all of this working toward distracting us. Studies have been shown that uh, for millennials, it's double that. And it's true because I've seen some of the phones of millennials in our church. It's, it, it's real. And so I, I, want you to get the, I want you to get this picture. Uh, what it does, it also reduces our memory. It's making us less intelligent. All of the distraction that we're facing. It's, it's affecting our problem solving. It's making us... Not good. I don't know if you knew this, but there was a study that was done on slot machines. Do you know that they make more money than baseball and the film industry combined? 
and you only drop quarters into them. And they said the reason why is because it's small segments over long periods of time. It's just a, it's just a quarter. It's just 75 cents. It's just a dollar. It's just two dollars. And so, so it, it becomes so addictive because it doesn't feel that bad because it's dished in small increments. And so, so right now what they're saying is, is we live in right now in an attention economy where the, the, the amount of attention that they can capture is the amount of money that they're going to gain. The, one a researcher from Microsoft, she said it this way. She said, she said that um, basically preoccupied attention is the new normal. It's like we're hardly ever fully focused. And so when you think about going to prayer for five hours, like our brains are like, no way. Like it just seems like, because we are so addicted. I love what Blaise Pascal is an old, old school philosopher and theologian. said, being unable to cure death, wretchedness and misery, men have decided in order to be happy not to think about such things. And what he was saying this is we just fight so hard nowadays like, we enjoy being distracted, because as long as we're distracted, we don't have to deal with reality. We don't have to deal with the reality. And, and, and distracted from God is even better, because if I'm not distracted from God, and God wants to deal with some real things in my heart, I don't know if I necessarily want to do that. I'd rather just live in a constant state of distraction. In, in 1936, uh, there was a man uh, by the last name of Huxley, and he wrote about man's infinite desire and appetite for distraction. And he said, rather than a utopia, look at, look at what he says. He said, in, this present, in his present novel, Brave New World, he envisioned a future dystopia, not of dictatorship, but of distraction, where sex, entertainment, and busyness tear apart the fabric of society. He wrote this in 1936. It's like, whoa. And so, so here's the deal is a lot of us, as much as we don't want to admit it, man, we are distracted. And we are addicted at some level to the culture and the environment of distraction that, that we're a part of. And, and this is where I know that, again, it, it hurts us. We don't like this because a lot of times we live our lives so disappointed because we're not prioritizing things that we know matter. And we can't seem to get out of that cycle. Like, you ever feel like that? You're like, you look at your kids, you're like, where did it go? Like, you, you, you look at this and you look at that and you're like, so much time has gone. Like, and you can feel the gravity as you look at your kids, as you look at your marriages, as you look at your career even. And, and the calling that God has on your life. Some of us, we look at the sin and we're so grieved over the sin in our life, but we've just lived a constant state of distraction, not letting God deal with the root causes of our idolatry. And it's left us in this pattern of just pressing play and clicking here and just, just don't deal with reality. And it's, it's super complex. But the scripture makes it very clear. that God wants us to deal with reality. God wants us to deal with what's real. I love Psalm 34, 39, verse 4 said, Lord, remind me of how brief my time is on earth. Like, God, keep that in the forefront of my heart. This was the prayer. I don't want to lose sight of my time. 
I want to focus on, what is, on what's important. Remind me that my days are numbered. How fleeting my life is. God, help me to see where my time is going. This was a cry in the ancient world. Right? We see Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24. King David crying out, search me, O God, and know my heart. Like, I don't just want to know where my time is going. I want to know, Lord, how my heart is doing. I want to deal with reality. Like, help me to see what's real. He says, know my anxious thoughts. Point out anything in me that offends you and lead me along the path of everlasting life. Like, God, I want to walk this out for real. I don't want to have the name Christian. I don't want to have just, you know, I show up to church once in a while. I click, click you know, check a box or click a link. No, it's not. I want to walk with you for real. I want to know the condition of my heart. Like, that's important. That's, that's, the, the Bible says, guard your heart above all things, for out of it flows the well spring of life. But in order to do that, you've got to slow down enough to pray. Oh, th- this is a prayer. Somebody that stopped in the middle of their day and said, God, search me. And we can sit here as long as we need to, Lord. Search my heart. Well, I don't have time to pray. I don't, man, not too many people are up at 3 in the morning. <sighs> Search me, oh God. Search me. We've got to slow down. We've got to fix our focus. Paul, uh, Peter helps us to do that in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7. He says, the end of all things is near. And can I, can I just say, as we look out into our world, we don't talk a lot. I just watched a movie. It was a really good little documentary. Uh, I'm not saying I agree with everything in it, but it, it is a great, a great segue on pre-tribulation, uh, and it's called Before the Wrath of God. It's on uh, Prime. So if you have Amazon Prime Digital, go get distracted with that movie. Um, <laughs> but, but it talks a lot about, about the, sec- the return of Christ. And there, there was some, some interesting research that was done by Lifeway Research, and what they said was this. They said that out of 450 sermons, when it came to a prophetic teaching of of, of something to come, like Jesus' return, they could only find 2% of 450 sermons that related to something prophetic. And when we look at the culmination of prophetic events in Scripture, it makes up about one-third of the Bible. And so if we're not talking about any of these things, like the end of all things is near, Peter was saying, he wasn't saying it's happening tomorrow, but what Peter is saying, listen, the Messiah's come. He lived the life that he said he would. He died on the cross. He rose from the grave on the third day. He ascended. He poured out his spirit. What's next? It's his return. Like that, that's, that's, what, that we're, that's what we're waiting for is the second coming of Christ. And so Peter said, listen, the end of all things are near. Could you imagine only 2% of sermons being preached today are talking about this stuff? I just wonder if that's why we're distracted. Because we don't really believe this. And, and, and the end of all things, James says that our life isn't promised tomorrow, right? Like it can end in a moment's time. So it's not just about us, it's about our neighbor. But then he goes on to say this. He says, the end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and of sober mind so that you can pray. In other words, don't be swept away by emotions or passions. But maintain the proper eternal perspective on life that helps us to live in such a way that's moderate, that's balanced, that's sober-minded. 
that, that we're not pulled about by every, you know, meme and every clip and every news, breaking news. There's so much, everything is breaking news, breaking news, breaking news. Like, whoa. He says, listen, no, no, you need to be sober-minded. You need to be alert. And, and, it, and it literally means to, to do just that. It means balance and moderation, just like an opera singer controls her breath. So we are to control our life in such a way, as Paul said to Timothy, keep your head in all things. Don't be, you know, swept away by illusion. Keep your wits so that you can have a heart that's undistracted for prayer. And so I think about all the things that are pulling us to the left and to the right. And the cool thing is the place of prayer that, that Peter is talking about here is not the synagogue. I thought this was so cool. He's talking about places outside of the synagogue, which would normally be along a riverbank or a stream or the shores of the sea so that they could wash as they began to pray. Because, you know, you walk into the temple, you wash up before you come in. And so I just thought, man, how awesome it is to create rhythms in our life where we're letting God wash us with his word to such a degree that it's keeping us alert and sober. It's keeping us sound. So we're not just, oh, what's going on, what's going on? No, no, it's just it's keeping us so sound so that we can be undistracted for prayer. Because the truth of the matter is, ladies and gentlemen, one of the things that, that has taken place across all of these revivals, that the main thing that I want you to, to walk away with today is God wants to do something in your life, in my life, in our city, in this region, in our nation that's supernatural. That's not going to happen outside of prayer, I'm just telling you. Prayer is how we dig up wells that release waters, living waters. And so, real quickly, Dallas Willard says this way, God will generally speaking not compete for our attention. If we will not withdraw from the things that obsess and exhaust us and go into solitude and silence, he will usually leave us to our own devices. Let's let this not be said of us. Let solitude and prayer dominate and permeate. Let us be obsessed with that. Like how many times am I touching you every single day, God? So I want to leave you with three questions to ponder. How do you start your day? And is God a part of it? How do you start your day? It's the first thing you touch. Who gets the best of you? So like some of you, God wants to birth some new things on the inside of you. And if you just got away from your devices, you'd have a few hours to work on those things. But God wants to innovate and create. I just feel like, man, we should be like the, one of the most creative generations on the planet in the church. But I just wonder if we just can't because we're so distracted. We're not hearing from God. And so it's clogging up the wells. And then lastly is where do your thoughts rest? Like where does your mind default to? Because that's going to tell a lot about what you value and how you navigate the gap of distraction. Maybe you need to add one more question is, what disciplines do you need in your life right now that will move you toward where God is calling you? A lot of times we set goals. I think we need to set disciplines. Because a lot of times we, it's not that we don't want the goal, we just don't have the discipline to get there. So, Father, I just pray right now. I know we're out of time. I just ask God that you would come, Holy Spirit, speak to every heart. Show us the areas of distraction. Show us the idols that we could tear them down, fix our focus, and dig some old wells of prayer, of intercession, of 
waiting on you and tearing with you, God. Do something in our hearts supernaturally, God. Some of us need to be, a lot of us, let me just say all of us, we need an addiction broken to distraction. So, Lord, would you, would you break our hearts to see clearly again? I believe you want to do something new in an old way. Help us to be people of prayer, sober-minded and alert, for the end is near, so that we can be undistracted and pray that we would see a move in our day and not just talk about moves back in the day. I want to see something happen now. Help us to be a church and individuals that are willing to pay that price. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Thanks again for joining us here at Fountain Church. For more details on how to get connected, visit us at fountainchurch.cc. We're also on YouTube, Facebook, and Instagram. We'll see you next time.